Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's the couple lines that we'll be covering this morning. And um, it, it begs the question of definition. Right? Like, thy kingdom come, okay, what is the kingdom of God? Thy will be done. We say God's will. What do we mean by that? And then on earth as it is in heaven. What's, what's the dynamic there? On earth as it is in heaven. And probably, if you're someone who's been around church at all, uh, these lines are probably fairly familiar to you. But I just wonder if you've ever kind of paused to be like, wait, what are we saying? <laughs> right? Like, thy kingdom come. What does it mean for, what is God's kingdom? And then what does it mean for it to come? And then thy will be done. We kind of assume, okay, I think I kind of maybe have a grasp of what God's will is. And then what's this bit about on earth as it is in heaven? We've said from jump that the Lord's Prayer is something that Jesus first enacts and embodies before he commands us to pray it. And so uh, it's really what I want to, to have in your mind by the end of this series is, yes, it's the Lord's Prayer in the sense that it's the prayer that he taught us to pray. Fascinatingly, it's the only time that his closest followers say, Jesus, teach us how to do something. You think of all the things Jesus did, miracles and healings and, and uh, turning, you know, a little bit of food into a whole lot of food and preaching and, you know, walking on water. And yet, this is the thing that his disciples say, whoa, whoa, Jesus, wait, stop. You got to give, give us a lesson on how do you do that? And it's teach us how to pray. That's what they ask him to do. And as one scholar that we noted in the intro uh, teaching in this series says, is it's likely because his followers very quickly understood that all of those other things stemmed from, were sourced in the depth of his relationship with the Father, were sourced in his life of prayer. And so if we can learn how to pray like Jesus prayed, and embody that prayer, and embody that relationship with God, maybe everything else kind of follows from that. And I think that that's a compelling argument. Another scholar says, each petition in the Lord's Prayer is a window into Jesus's character and actions before it is instruction for us. Every petition is a window into Jesus's character and actions before it is instruction for us. And so, in some ways, uh, we'll actually wait till the end to say, how does Jesus embody and enact thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? How is it that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a window into Jesus's character and actions before it's a command on us? But first, let's get to this bit about defining terms. What is the kingdom of God? What is the will of God? And what does it mean that we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Thankfully, for the sake of the duration of this sermon, uh, all of those things are deeply linked concepts. And it actually starts on, uh, now this isn't going to sound great for the duration of the sermon, but it actually starts on the first page of the Bible, where we have God creating all things. And I know this is your favorite way for uh, a teaching to go. We're going to start with a little Bible trivia, okay? So, on the first day, does anybody know what God created? Light. Good, good. God created light on the first day. The opening scene in, in the, this narrative is, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is a scary, chaotic image. You don't want to be out in the middle of the ocean in the dead of night on a moonless night, right? Like, this is a scary image. This is a chaotic image. This is a threatening image that this, the, the entire story of scriptures opens up with. And then verse 3, out of nothingness God speaks, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So he creates light, and he gives this separation between day and night. And on the story goes, he creates a, a difference between the sky and the waters. Then he creates actual land. Listen to what happens on the fourth day. On the fourth day, um, God said, let, oh no, that's not it. Um, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. This is day four. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to light upon the earth. First day, he creates day and night. Fourth day, he creates the sun and the moon. And it was so. And God, now this is the key. And God made the two great lights the greater light, that's the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them over the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night. That's your cl clue. You might be like, uh, I don't get much from that. But that is a massive reality, is this is actually how the creation account is structured, is that you have uh, certain realities, certain kind of um, locations, domains created, day and night, sky and sea, the, the earth. And then you have these things in days four through six. That's days one through three, days four through six. If I could diagram it, if whiteboards worked on the stage, I'd diagram it for you. But basically, you have this relationship between these domains and then things that fill them. And the first one that we have is day and night, sun and moon. And the sun and moon are to rule over the day and night. And then you have these, these interesting uh, other aspects, but we'll jump all the way to the end where the, the other thing that is said to explicitly rule over aspects of creation is what? Us. Good. This is good. If you've been around Jacob's Well, we talk about this a lot. It's encouraging the heart of your pastor. Okay. So humanity is given this distinct role to rule over all of the created order. But even within that created order, the point that I'm trying to make is that there is this, this orderliness to the way that God creates. He says the sun and the moon exist so that the day and the night are ruled over. The, the, the inhabited land exists so that the animals have something to rule over. And this is not dominating, coercive rule. This is a dynamic relationship in which the, the thing that rules over the other thing gives it life, makes it the thing that it's supposed to be, serves that thing's purposes, okay? And that's what humanity is supposed to do, is we are given dominion, right? This is verse 28, famously, then God said, let us make humanity, man, in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens. He's including everything, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So there's this orderliness that God is creator. 
he hands this particular role of ruling to humanity who themselves are explicitly, we're told here, over the animals who themselves are actually called to, to in some sense, rule over, have dominion over the, the fish, uh, or excuse me, over the, the, the fish, over the seas, the birds, over the airs, the land animals, over the the land, very good, you're tracking with me, right? Um, and so there's this orderliness to the whole thing. And almost all scholars will argue that this concept that some would think pops out of nowhere when Jesus breaks onto the scene in whatever year you, you put that at, sometime in between 20 and 30 AD, and he says, the kingdom of God is near. These are the opening words of Jesus' ministry. Flip all the way to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That's a word that we're well familiar with uh, in our community. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And most say, whoa, where's Jesus getting this? This is a new concept. This is something that like Jesus dreamed up in like, you know, whatever, his, his living room. Um, no, no, no. This is something that jumps off the pages of the scriptures. Jesus is entering a very specific story. And that story begins with the very definition of the orderly rule that God has given for all of creation to flourish. In other words, the concept of the kingdom of God begins and is defined by the opening scenes of the scriptures themselves. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is creation flourishing under the particular order that God gave it from the beginning. That's what the kingdom of God is. Here's what happens in that kingdom, though. It was supposed to be God, humanity, animals, creation. Are you ready? Can you track with me? A piece of fruit, creation, is taken by a serpent, an animal, handed to humanity, who then takes of it in direct disobedience to God. That's what happened there. An exact flipping of the orderliness that God had intended for creation. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is in so many words saying the upside down reality of this world is being set right side up because the kingdom of God is being restored. The orderly rule that God intended for all creation is beginning in and through what I am about to do. And in fact, Jesus is not just, we don't just jump from Genesis all the way to Jesus in that reality. This is actually the story of God and his people literally from the fall forward is that God again and again is pursuing the salvation and redemption of his people. And with the kingdom of God lens on, you see it all over the place that what God is trying to do is he's saying, I am setting right what has gone wrong. And the first indication that we have of how tightly this is connected to this kingdom reality is when Jesus 
pulls his people out of Egypt. If you're familiar with the story, you probably remember this part. Maybe you're just familiar with Prince of Egypt. This is that part of the story. His people are in slavery. God pulls them out and he says, I am going to make you a people. And through you, I will build a kingdom that will spread to the four corners of the earth and will be for the flourishing of all creation. But I'm going to start with this kingdom. And guess who is made king of that kingdom? Guess who is supreme ruler over that people of God? You know who? Who? This is an interesting one. I'm baiting you because I don't know that I saw this um, prior prior to studying it this week. In Deuteronomy, which is the giving of the law, it's a really interesting thing where at the beginning of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 1.30, it says, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Okay, Just remember that language. He will fight for you. He will go before you. Jump all the way then to Deuteronomy chapter 33. This is Moses, who you would think was made king of the people, because Moses is kind of the ruler of the people of Israel. This is his reflections on all of what's gone down in God calling together a people. It says this, Deuteronomy 33, I'll start at verse 3. Yes, God loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus, the Lord became king. Isn't that interesting? The Lord became king and Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So God calls the people together. He says, I'm going to start with this kingdom. And he says, guess who's king? Guess who's ultimately in charge? I am. I am your king. This people then becomes a people. They are like all of us. They are a rebellious people. They are like our first parents. Um, They worship creation, which what does that mean, right? Like you might think like, yeah, those old time, you know, folks, those strange people back in the day who were like, oh, you know, to, to whatever, to trees or whatever. And we don't really have that anymore. No, here's what that's doing. Is it saying that the stuff of this world is where true contentment is found. And so I will do anything that I can do in order to obey what it says it takes to get it. And so we might not bow down to trees, but we still bow down to success and to monetary security and to romantic love and relationships. Yeah, maybe they had specific names for these gods. We've just capitalized the concepts behind those gods, and we very much bow to them, right? This is always the problem for humanity, is we always say the stuff of this world is where real meaning and significance and satisfaction is found. So I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to assign ultimate worth. That's what worship is. I'm going to assign ultimate worth to the stuff of this world. If I could just have more of it, then I will be who I'm supposed to be. And echoed in that are our first parents and the entire story of God's people in the Old Testament, who again and again give themselves over to the biblical definition of what that is, which is idolatry. We're still living in that. Humanity never moves beyond a fundamental tendency toward idolatry. As the great reformer John Calvin said, he said, the heart is an idol, I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E, 
idea is an idol factory. We are constantly making new things to bow before. We are constantly resetting the target. We are constantly resetting what the definition of ultimate satisfaction is. And it's always inevitably this worldly. This is what the people of God do. They get to a point where they say, God, we feel vulnerable in this world, and listen to what they do. This is 1 Samuel 8. We're flying through the Old Testament here. 1 Samuel 8, the people say this. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. This is a prophet of God trying to call the people back to obedience, trying to call the people back to the kingdom of God, to the way that their kingdom would flourish, not just for themselves, but for all people. But they refused to obey his voice. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The people demand a this-worldly king. They say the only way for a kingdom to really work is to have a strong this-worldly king. And they say what this king will do was go out before us and fight our battles. Remember what I read in Deuteronomy 1? What did it say? God said to his people, I will go out before you and fight your battles. They're saying it's not good enough, God, for you to do that in an unseen way that requires faith and trust from us. We need to see it in the flesh. We need a king. And guess what God does? He gives them a king, right? Because this is, it's so important to understand how God functions. I think that we still so often operate under this very petty, at least punitive view of God. That if you tick God off, Ooh, he will zap you, right? Which is far more the character and nature of Zeus in Greek mythology than it is the God of the scriptures. The God of the scriptures judgment is more often than not, not a zap from heaven. It is almost inevitably handing us over to the very thing that we have asked and demanded of him. That this is often the language of judgment. Look at Romans, which a lot of people see as like, whoa, you don't, you don't want to put your finger on Romans, like there's some intense stuff there about the judgment of God. Even in Romans, the apostle Paul, great early missionary and teacher, is kind of his magnum opus in the New Testament, is again and again, when he talks about the judgment of God, he says, they were handed over to their desires. They were handed over to their passions. You don't want to be handed over by God to your own demands. This story devolves very quickly. It devolves in king after king after king being uh, increasingly who we tend to see rulers of this world be. By the way, this is something that God completely warned his people against. Look, you want a king just like all the other nations? You sure about that, bro? Because here's what kings do, and he gives them all these warnings, and then the rest of the, New T- uh, the Old Testament is largely watching those kings do exactly what God forecasted they would do. Be manipulative, coercive, be about their own status, gaining their own whatever it is. And yet in, in that line of kings, there is a whisper, and it comes from one specific king who is seen as the great king of the people of Israel, which is who? David, good. So King David, we get this whisper of like, David was pretty good. And if you read the life of David, it's like, 
this is your exemplar? You know, like, my man, like, he is adulterous, and then he covers his adultery by super casual strategic murder, and then we're told he is a man after God's own heart. He at least is a man aware of his own sin and brokenness, right? Like we have his diary basically in the book of Psalms. He's aware of his own brokenness. He's crying out to God for some kind of way out of his own brokenness and the brokenness of others and the pressure of his situation and the temptation that he faces all around him. And God says, yeah, that's about as good as it gets. But a promise is made that there's one coming greater than David who will be the king that you long for who will sit on a throne forever, who will establish the kingdom of God to the four corners of creation, a son of David. And so in Bethlehem, the town where David was associated with, from the line of David, we are told in no uncertain terms, a baby is born. This is, of course, what we celebrate at Christmas. This is why the name David shows up in a lot of Christmas carols, is because of that promise. And then Jesus shows up and he says, behold, the kingdom of God is here. It's among you. It's at hand. What he's saying is the true king of the world has walked onto the stage. And what I am here to do is establish nothing short of setting right a world that has gone upside down in every imaginable way. So this is why it's so important to understand who Jesus was and what he was here to do. He was here that the kingdom of God might come. Listen to this language from Philippians chapter 2. It's beautiful, what's known as the Christ hymn. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's a definition of who Jesus was. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was God himself, God in flesh, he did not consider the rights and privileges of being God something to be held onto. Who does that not sound like? All of us, right? All the kings, all of our first parents, you and I but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So he's born as a human being, and yet he doesn't hold on to the rights and privileges of being God, but instead makes himself a servant. He is here to serve. He is here for the flourishing of others. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to who? God. To God, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is overturning the order of creation that every single human being has reenacted since our first parents. He comes in human form. He bears the image of God as a human being. And yet he doesn't hold on to equality with God. He submits to God. He becomes obedient to God. And in becoming obedient, he serves the world by going all the way into obedience, even death on a cross. He suffers the judgment that all of us deserve, that even creation itself 
The curse that creation itself is wallowing under, Jesus himself bears on the cross. And the judgment that we all rightly deserve because we are not the human beings that God calls us to do, because we actually do violence to the kingdom of God and are complicit in the upside downness of the world, he bears it all on himself. Do you hear how Jesus is the second and greater and perfect Adam? You hear that? Do you hear how Jesus is the greater and perfect king? Do you hear how, how different it is? Now, now check this out because sometimes we jump over this. Verse 9 in Philippians 2. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Most of us, when we hear the phrase Jesus is Lord, we think Jesus is God. That is actually to say something profoundly theologically true, but for the wrong reason. Jesus is God, but there's better places and better ways to define what, why that is. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are actually saying Jesus is the human being that we could not be. Jesus is Lord in the sense of he is reigning and ruling as we were meant to and yet could not. You see, in heaven right now, there is a human being sitting and reigning over all creation, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. That's the good news. That's the fundamental good news of the New Testament is Jesus is the one sitting enthroned over all things. There is a human being on the throne of creation at last. So when we say, let your kingdom come, it's Jesus rule and reign as the one worthy of the name of Lord over all creation. Do you notice that it's Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father? There remains the sense in which Jesus is reigning and ruling as a human being is ultimately to the glory of one even greater in some sense. Now, there's some, whatever, heresy there and all those things. But that's, that's what the text says and what we're supposed to understand. Here's the surprising thing about the New Testament and about the, what, the age that we are living in is that most of the prophets of old said that when this greater and perfect King David came, that would be it. Curtains on creation. It's over at that point. At that point, that king comes, destroys all of the enemies of God, establishes the people of God as the pinnacle of God's creation, and all creation thrives under his reign and rule. I ask you an observational question. Is that what's happened? No, no right? No, we look around us. We still see devastation. We still see creation groaning. We still see doors broken into. I don't know if you saw that on your way in, right? Like acts of criminal acts around us. What do you do with that? The most surprising thing about the New Testament 
is that the kingdom of God has come, but even to use the language of Jesus, it has not come yet in its fullness. That there is this overlapping of times. If I could draw two big, huge circles here, I would draw them. And this overlapping of the realities of this world and the world that is to come, we live in the overlap of those two. This is the surprising thing that the New Testament says, is that the kingdom of God, yes, is among us, but it is not yet here in its completion. Here's the language that Nijay Gupta, uh, a wonderful New Testament scholar who, who was actually my Greek TA in seminary. Now he's kind of like a really well-known New Testament scholar. I know you're impressed. <laughs> I can tell you more stories of my brushes with fame uh, if you want later. But here's what he says. He says, the most common interpretation today of the kingdom language in the Gospels is referred to as inaugurated eschatology. Say that, inaugurated eschatology. Good, you can impress your friends. The idea that Jesus launched the new, long-awaited kingdom of God, but his followers still await the final consummation and full presence of the kingdom. We have a taste of what it can be, but it is not fully experienced and will not be until the return of King Jesus. Get that? Overlapping. One of the other ways that this is talked about biblically is these two circles have various kinds of names. This present age, the sinfulness and brokenness of this world, the age to come, uh, God's kingdom consummated. Another way to talk about these two realities is to talk about earth and heaven. That ideally, this, the, the realms, the dimensions of heaven and earth are meant to be perfectly overlapping dimensions. Heaven is not a place out there where people go when they die, biblically. It's kind of in there, maybe kind of, sort of. The overwhelming way that the scriptures talk about heaven is say it is God's realm. It is the place where his, where his will, there's that language from, from the lines in our prayer, is absolutely perfectly exec executed and unthwarted. That's what heaven is. It's God's, it's the control room of the universe. And that is the place where God perfectly rules. In the Garden of Eden, we are to understand that these two realities perfectly overlapped. That where God was, was where humanity was. When God's will was called to be done, it was perfectly done. When humanity is cast out of the garden, part of the reality that's happening is they are cast out of the presence of God, which is to say they are cast out of heaven. In other words, heaven and earth are driven apart. And now you have things in the Old Testament like the fact that the temple where God's presence uniquely rested in this world, they say it's his footstool. So picture big old God, creator of the universe, and, and like where he rests his feet is in the temple. But he's actually literally phys physically present there. You know what they understood that singular little teeny tiny room as? Heaven on earth. That's how they talk about it. They say, this is where heaven uniquely dwells. It's the one place where there's an overlap of heaven and earth. The temple. When Jesus comes, one of the things he calls himself, he says, I'm the temple. I'm the temple. Tear this temple down and God will raise it up again. He refers to himself as the temple. In other words, I am the place where heaven and earth meet. In my being, in my person, I actually am a place where heaven and earth meet. Therefore, should we be surprised that wherever Jesus goes, the realities of the kingdom follow him? The realities of heaven follow him. That illness 
is healed, the blind see, that the oppressed go free, that sinners are saved and welcomed in. You see, he's saying, I bring with me the realities of heaven. So wherever I go, a little bit of heaven bursts forth in this world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's saying, God, let more of that reality spread. Let more of that be true of the brokenness of this world. Let the overlap of heaven and earth increase. This is why the final scene in the biblical narrative is not us, those of us who follow Jesus, flying away, O glory, as disembodied souls to be with God in heaven, whatever that means, floating on clouds. The last movement of the biblical story is what? It is heaven coming to earth. Do you know that? And I saw the new heavens and the new earth coming down and overlapping perfectly. And when that happens, yes, all of the realities of heaven, the unthwarted will of God is done such that all creation is renewed. That's what we're moving towards. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're saying, God, make a little bit more of that true today. Make a little bit more of that the case in this world. You might be asking the question that I ask, which is, why not just do all that at once? What's with the overlap? And the New Testament's answer to why the overlap, why the delay in Jesus' coming to fully implement the realities of the kingdom, as far as the, the waters cover the sea, why the overlap, why the wait? Do you know what the New Testament's answer is? Because you, not Phil Sontag, I just happened to point at Phil. Because me. Because if God comes and wipes out all of his enemies, guess who's part of that cleansing job? You and me. Literally says Jesus is gracious in being patient such that we might come to repentance. When Jesus comes on the scene, he says, the kingdom is here. Believe that this is good news. And here's how you respond. You repent and believe it. You repent. In other words, the way to be part of that overlap and the ultimate overlap one day is to first repent, to renounce allegiance to any other kingdom and to sign up for mine and to believe the gospel. In other words, participate in what I am bringing about. That's why we've called this series Participating in Thy Kingdom Come. Because when we pray this way, we say, we want to be part of that kingdom. And what it means is a leaving of other kingdoms and a signing up and enlisting in a new kingdom. It's as simple as that. But that's why the delay. Because God is merciful and he wants many to come to repentance. He's waited for you in some sense. As crazy as that sounds. We live in between times. We live in the already but not yet. We live in inaugurated eschatology. That's why we pray. Even though the kingdom has come in some sense, that's why we still pray with urgency. But let it come more, O oh God. Let your will be done more, O oh God. On earth, exactly as it is in heaven. Stowell's uh, gave me a, a, a beautiful little picture that hangs in my office now that says, in Jersey, as it is in heaven. Don't you love that? Can you imagine that? Jersey being a place where these overlaps happen. That's what we're praying for. 
Let me give you three kind of practicalities that I can think of what this means for us. Because the other thing that we have said about this is in addition to this being something that Jesus first enacts and embodies is that also this prayer at its most fundamental, basically anyone who gives it any amount of time to meditate on it and look at the structure of it is what's clear is that this is meant to mess with our priorities. Not just in how we pray, but in how we live. It takes an awful long time, unlike most of our prayers in reality, to get to anything about my needs. The prayer starts with an establishment of who's in charge. And can you hear some kingdom of God realities to that? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of that preface before we ask for anything. And so, as one scholar says, the Lord's Prayer is nothing less than the daily bending of our lives to the God who, in Jesus Christ, has so graciously bent toward us. Did you love that? Three things I can think of for us practically. One, I think we need to be suspicious of our own agendas. We are, we have allegiance to other kingdoms. And by praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we are to call into question what those, how those allegiances are at war with, contradict our allegiance to the kingdom of God. I love this. Uh, great ethicist, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, a wonderful scholar, couldn't commend him more to you, says, God's, uh, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying that God's will might appear to us, might be made manifest to our eyes in all of its terrible distance from what we want. Isn't that profound? All of its terrible distance from what we want. I think of the, uh, the Archbishop Tim Keller, as I like to call him. Uh, he's a pastor in New York City, major influence on me. He's not really an archbishop, um, uh, but uh, he is to me. Um, he says, he says in, in, I forget where it is at this point, but he, I think it's on the occasion of like his 60th birthday. And he says, when I was 20, I was just talking to, to a member of our church about this this week, is when I was 20, if you had asked me, what, what am I going to need in this next decade? What am I going to need to grow and mature? What am I going to need to be happy? What, he said, I would have I produced that list so quickly, handed it to God. Then when I got to 30, I would have looked back and it would have been like, how many of those things did you get? And it would have been like, very few of them. How are you doing? Actually, I'm, I'm pretty good. I feel like I've grown. I feel like even though it's been hard, like, I, yeah, I feel like I have exactly what I need. But then if you ask me, so what about in your 30s? I would have been like, okay, let's remake the list. And on and on he goes. And he says, every decade, even though looking back, I got very little of what I needed and yet, or what I wanted and got very much what I needed from God in all of the complexity of saying that. He says, I think now that I'm 60, if you ask me that question, I'd say, I have no idea. And he says, I'm proud that it only took me 60 years, right? Like, there's so much truth in that, isn't there? We are so unbelievably confident that we know exactly what we need that so often the actual tenor of whether it's actual prayers or kind of our implicit prayers is, Lord, if you would just allow my kingdom to come, if you would just allow my will to be done, man, would heaven come to earth. And so sit down, listen up, here's my list, right? Might not be how we pray, often how we live, though. 
thinks of, uh, of a podcast I was listening to uh, this week. You into podcasts? That's a thing these days. Do you like the podcast? Um, someone was talking about a teacher uh, sent a bunch of students from this high school, a bunch of their journals from high school. They, the teacher like found these journals and was like, you uh, tracked down their addresses and was like, I don't, I don't want to look at these, um, but you might be interested. And one of, the, uh, one of the people who got the journals who was on this podcast said, I literally sent back a note to the teacher and said, oh, uh, you sent me the wrong one. Um, and was dead serious. Like, you sent me the wrong one. This person is unrecognizable to me. Uh, the arrogance, uh, how certain this person is of the future. Not joking at all. Like, this person is an obnoxious person, and I like to think of myself as a lovely person. And as you would guess, the story goes, no, it's yours. It's your journal. It's just that... 16, 17-year-old self, now, you know, whatever it was, 30 years later, you kind of go, like, and yet most of us, right, this is, this is always the thing, is we think that the distance in between the wisdom, growth, and maturity of me at whatever, 50, and me at 17 is infinitely greater than the distance between the wisdom, maturity, and knowledge of the creator of the universe, and whatever age me. When the dif difference is infinitely greater. Hope that's not news to you. It's probably news to our hearts. It's news to the operating systems of our lives. But such as it is, that's the truth. And so how many of us, myself included, would actually at the end of the day be embarrassed to the point of unrecognizability when we stand in the presence of Almighty God and we say, all right, let's, let's, uh, let's tally up who was right. <laughs> right? Like, who, who had this one straight? Now, look, I'm saying that to some of you who have been through enormous pain, who have been through enormous suffering. And you say, I refuse to believe that that, that that applies in my case. And to you, I would just say, I don't know all of the workings of how all of this goes down. I do know that part of the reality, what... What the sovereignty of God means, oof, all right, I'm going to try and avoid heresy here, but I think what the sovereignty of God means is not necessarily that God is, uh, is coercively in charge of every single thing in our lives. We just don't get that view biblically. What we absolutely get and why I hold to the sovereignty of God is that there is absolutely nothing in this world that can thwart the will of God in the ultimate sense. And the will of God, when we span out cosmically to these kingdom realities, to heaven meeting earth, that will not be thwarted by anything that any of us individually go through. And here's where it's really important to understand also, Jesus first embodied and enacted this prayer before he had the audacity to ask us to pray it. Because the prayer, not my will but yours be done, who is most famously known for those words being on his lips. It is the Christ himself. It is God incarnate. It is God in flesh who being found in human form went all the way into obedience to God to the point of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet the night before he says, God, if this is what it takes, thine, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. Jesus embodied and enacted this prayer so that you never need doubt that when you say, God, not my will, but yours be done, your destination is not Jesus's. He went 
where he refuses to allow you to go, which is ultimate desertion from the Father. He said, not my will, but yours be done, such that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never need come onto your lips. Yes, there will be moments, many in life, where you need to say, not my will, but yours be done. But this is why Jesus is the heart of this prayer. Because when we pray that, we know that there is not desertion on the other side of that. This is why the Apostle Paul says weird stuff like that you may, by testing, approve what is the will of God. The what? The good, pleasing, perfect will of God. His intentions for you are good, child of God. His intentions for you ultimately, and yes, things will come that you have every right that we have biblical evidence to shake your fist and say, God, how could this possibly be your will? And he shakes his fist with you to some degree. That is why he went into pain, suffering, sin, death, and hell. He says, I'm with you there. And this will not thwart my will for you. It will not. It may feel like a cross, but the destination of our crosses is not the grave. It is ultimately resurrection and life with him. This is our hope. This is also a decision to participate in what we're praying for. I love these words from Wesley Hill, who says this. That is, what teaches, uh, that is what Jesus teaches his followers to cry out for. Your kingdom come means, Father, make your healing reign more and more tangible and visible in our world. Let your rule assert itself ever more concretely in the places where sickness and evil still seem to have the upper hand. Give us more tangible previews of that great day when death will be swallowed up in victory. Help us see that Jesus' resurrection isn't just a one-off event, but will sweep us along in its wake so that we will share in his transformation. Your kingdom come is to say that where sin and evil and death and division reign currently, God, wipe it out by your healing love. And there is no way that we can pray that without hearing a raised hand that says, make me an ambassador of that reality. Make me a participant in that coming. How can we say, Jesus, the most precious thing to us, what we cry out for are for these realities to be done, and then sit and passively wait upon them? Not only is Jesus called a temple where heaven and earth overlap. You know the one other group of people that are called a temple in the New Testament? <laughs> Yours truly. That's crazy, right? And by the way, this reality is almost always not necessarily primarily spoken. In one place it's spoken of as an individual reality. It's more so the people of God as a temple. Together we do this. Our Father who is in heaven makes us Corporately, a place where heaven and earth can overlap. A place where the realities of the age to come invade the realities of this age. This is why we as the church, we have to be different than what's around us. We can't let the nonsense, the division, the hatred, the marginalization of this world enter here because that's to get the overlap in the wrong direction. That's to allow earth into a place where heaven's supposed to be gaining ground. 
breaking barriers to encounter Jesus. This is the vision of our church, and it's birthed in these realities that we believe that as we break barriers, that the realities of heaven, which most importantly, more than any of these other benefits, more than any of these other social realities, is Jesus himself, the presence of God, the healing presence of the Savior of the universe, might be encountered as we break down those walls, allowing heaven to invade earth. In small little ways, yes, here in Jersey, yes, in your workplace, yes, in your homes. This is why we set ourselves to different practices and behaviors. This is why we take discipleship so seriously here. Because if we are not cultivating very specific postures and skills and practices and rhythms in our lives, what hope do we have of becoming some kind of outpost of heaven? This is work to set our hands to. Finally, to pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is to live in reality, but to live with hope. What I mean by that, to live in reality, but to live with hope, is in saying thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we acknowledge that earth is not heaven. That we look around and we are willing to say, this is not how it's supposed to be. We've got to be, as followers of Jesus, people who are willing to say, this world as it currently is, exists is not our home. We are not content with it. Do you hear how that undoes that idolatry nonsense? The stuff of this world does not satisfy. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We've got to not just say that, we've got to live that. We've got to show the world that the stuff of this world is not sufficient for satisfaction and joy this side of heaven. And we cry out in word and deed, thy kingdom come because this world is not how it should be. But do you hear it? We live in reality, but we live with hope because we're saying, but that reality is coming. It is coming. Thy kingdom come. It, it, it's the, I love the language there that Jesus' resurrection is not a one-off event. Jesus' resurrection is a preview. It's what, it's what the age to come looks like in miniature. And one day what was true in the resurrection of Jesus will flood every reality to the four corners of the earth. That day is coming. And in praying this and living this, we, we shout that hope. And then we say, would you come with us? Repent and believe. Because this is really, really, really good news. This is the gospel. Jesus brought the kingdom. He is the king. Jesus is Lord. That's really good news. There is a human being reigning and ruling over all things. We do not yet see the fullness of that rule. And yet, our task as those who are taught to pray this prayer is to participate in seeing that reality brought in small ways, but life-changing, transformative ways, bringing heaven to earth here and now. Would you stand with me as we pray this prayer together? And now we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And so we are bold to say, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you stay on your feet? Band, you guys can come up. It is appropriate.